and welcome to another new edition of James Baldwin's America. I am your host, Jesse James. Really excited for today's guest. We're going to learn a little bit about dancing and a form of dancing I'm almost positive not too many of you are familiar with. And then on the other side of the interview, we're going to spend some time today talking about Tupac Shakur and touching back on a subject last week we talked about and that is the artist's struggle for integrity. So I will spend the majority of the time today talking to you on the other side of the interview and I want to get to that right away. So after this short break, I will be talking with Travion's Witherspoon and she will talk to you about her experience at UW-Madison, her creativity as an artist, and a style of dancing called crump. And that'll happen right after this. Travions, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. First question I always ask everybody on the podcast is, what is your favorite work done by Baldwin? Ooh, um, that's a good question. Um, actually, um, my favorite work um, from Baldwin is actually something that technically he didn't um, make because he was already gone by the time, but um, I am not your Negro. Um, I really liked how it was like put together and like it showed how even now it's still relevant. Uh, his work is still relevant. Um, and he has been gone for years, um, now. So, yeah. Is, was that your first experience with Baldwin or had you read anything by him prior to that? Yes, I've read, um, Baldwin, um, mostly during my time at UW-Madison um, was like, I was exposed to a lot of Baldwin, but like uh, the fire next time. That was what I was, that's, yes. Like I was like, yeah, uh, that's, that, that is, that's my, that's the piece. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was thinking about, I was like, what is the title? I was like, it was fire. Right. But um <laughs> But yeah, that that's the piece. Watching I'm Not Your Negro, and with that being like an inlet to Baldwin, and yourself growing up in Racine, which for listeners that don't know, it's pretty much the halfway point between Milwaukee and Chicago. It's a very diverse area. How were you able to relate your own life growing up in that situation in that city to some of the things you saw in the film? So, um, growing up, uh, in racing, like I experienced different cultures all the time. So like, it was like really interesting and I feel like it has shaped my experience a lot being at park high school with police officers in our school um, kind of helped me to like relate more to the um, I am not your Negro um, narrative um, because like every day for me personally it didn't really set in at school but it was one particular um, 
occurrence that happened um, when there was a fight in the middle of the hallway and um, there were like, the police came, like the school officers came and like tried to break up the fight. Um, and then they were like, they sprayed some like pepper spray and like in the middle of the hallway, I couldn't breathe. A lot of kids were coughing. Um, a kid that had nothing to do with the fight was trying to just go to class and got pulled down from um, from the stairs and tased. Um, and like kids were like being body slammed. It was just like too much. So like that particular experience really was like, whoa. Um, and like, I also by sophomore year had become an activist, like an organizer um, through a group called Youth Empowered in the Struggle, also known as YES. Um, and we dealt with the school to prison pipeline and like rights for ch like the students at our schools and things like that. So I feel like that has all shaped me and like seeing I Am Not Your Negro later on in life, um, when I was at the University of Mad UW-Madison, um, it just like really like put it all into perspective. The high school you attended, was it a really diverse high school or were students of color like a really small portion? When I went into the hallways, it was a lot of like different people. It was mostly um, black and Latino students um, and then, like, we had, like, white kids, too, and, um, yeah, um, I think we had, yeah, I think that was, like, majority of, like, the makeup of our, um, school, and, um, we also had, like, little spots in the school that were, like, kind of, like, segregated in a way, like, we had, like, Little Mexico, and, um, I think they called it Little Africa, and, I, I don't know, like, if it was Alice in Wonderland or something, something like that. But it was, like, as you can tell from the names, like, it kind of was really separated. So, like, that's where, like, people hung out mostly. Like, Black uh, students hung out in certain parts of the school, like, during passing time and things like that and all the other kids. So, yeah, but, like, we had diversity, but it was just, like, in the classes that I was in, it was mostly the white students and there was like a sprinkle of like people of color in there. Going back to what you said earlier, talking about going to school with a police presence. I know personally, I grew up in a school that wasn't diverse at all. I would probably say there were maybe 1500 students and if 1% were anything other than white would probably even be pushing it. We had a police officer there, but he was never somebody that, I mean, basically for lack of a better phrase, he just sat on his ass all day. And with obviously with COVID, we, nobody's been in school, so we haven't had to deal with school shootings, but having that police presence, did that make you feel any safer when you went to school? No. Actually, like, a lot of times, like, they were just there to, um, like, if something happened, but it was, like, 
after something had already happened. Like, I don't feel like they ever stopped anything or prevented anything. If And if someone wanted to do something, like, had an ill will to do something, they're going to do it regardless. So, like, um, and, like, I feel like they had to, like, wait for outside um, stuff, like, uh, police presence if something really big happened anyway. So, like, it really didn't make me feel safer. It actually sometimes made me feel, like, a little anxious because especially after I saw them, like, that big incident, like, that really didn't even have to be that involved. Like, I've been in, like, schools before that, like, middle school and things like that with no police presence. And um, if a fight was about to break out, a teacher or a counselor or someone that is just an adult figure would come separate the fight. No one is getting body slammed. No one is getting harmed in any way. There is no weapon being used on the kids. Like there was no weapons. Like the kids didn't have weapons. Like it was just kids. Like, you know, like I feel like they were trying in a way it was like getting us prepared for that possibility outside of being in school. I think you brought up a really important point in your answer when you said the police that were there, they didn't stop anything from happening. They just reacted to what had happened. And I think that's really important when the issue comes up about talking about defunding the police. And it's not, yes, there are people that want to completely abolish the police. But I think there's a bigger segment of people that want to defund it and put the resources and money into other avenues that could help de-escalate situations like you were talking about. Because, yeah, a cop there, like you said, you go to school, you feel anxious. And that, either consciously or subconsciously, that's going to affect you on a daily basis. And so if there are more, you know, guidance counselors or resource officers or just some other presence there that wasn't carrying a gun, that wasn't carrying a taser, that already had fear instilled into the students. I just feel like there are so many people that are blind to that fact that, yeah, like policing in this country needs to change. And by defunding it or even abolishing it to put those resources somewhere else. It's to just not have anything. It's not, any, nobody's advocating for complete lawlessness. Everybody wants to be safe. There's nobody that wants to go to school and feel anxious or scared. But it's the way that it can be ha handled and hiring people that have the experience and the knowledge to handle any number of situations that don't involve meeting violence with violence or even bringing violence into a situation that wasn't violence. So I just wanted to highlight that because I think, like I said, it's something that people overlook. And I want to transition now away from high school but and go to your time when you were a student at UW-Madison. And it's notorious for being like this liberal bastion in the middle of a state that is prominently usually red and so it's thought that anybody can go there and anybody can feel safe 
and welcome and this badger experience, this UW ideology that is instilled to the students. It, it's not that way for students of color. And full disclosure to the listeners, Travionce was an undergrad at UW. I was a graduate student. I happened to teach her in one of my classes. So her and I have little different experiences, but talk a little bit about your experience as an undergrad at UW and some of the things that you not only saw, but maybe precautions that you had to take as not only a black female, but you're a tiny person. So this feeling of safety that many people had on that campus, you really didn't feel that. There was a lot going on. So I started UW in um, fall of 2015. And um, a lot of my friends um, experienced a lot of racial tension right, right from the jump. Um, and they actually started, um, a coalition, uh, uh, called the real UW. Um, and for those that don't know, the real UW was a, it was like, really like, it was really dope that like they were able to use their experiences and really like bring power to the, give power to themselves, um, but um, a lot of backlash came from that as all um, social movements um, bring. Um, and it was one of the biggest things that caused that issue was like the symbol. It was um, Bucky with a um, Ku Klux Klan um garb or you know whatever um and then like (laughs) and like a torch and stuff so he like they had Bucky dressed as um a KKK member and like people were like leaving death threats saying you mess with Bucky you mess with us and like Bucky is a mascot like we're like there's things that are happening like the if people took the time to like literally like actually look into like what is this about like UW Madison had a club like KKK was a club at UW Madison like back in the day so it's like that's the real found like there it's deeper mm-hmm. than the surface and that's something that people didn't like really care for they didn't care about that they just like oh my gosh our precious Bucky, like, I'm a Badger, so, like, yeah, Bucky, let's go, like, let's go Badgers, but if there, if the students that are going there are still feeling the effects of there being a KKK club back in the day, that's an issue, like, it's, uh, at that time, it was 2015, but, like, I'm still, a student at UW-Madison and um, like I've taken time away like because I still feel some of those effects like yeah Um, but anyway so like there's a lot of things that I had been taught by uh, older students like don't go um, to Langdon 
by especially by yourself, but just try to avoid that area as much as possible. Um, and like just little things like that. And um, being a woman, like in, like just being a woman in general, like you have to like be hyper aware all the time. Um, and I don't know, it was just like little things. So it's like, you have to find your like spaces that you feel comfortable in like being and yeah. And also you can't have um, like pepper spray or anything on campus. So like if you're off campus, yeah, you can have it. But like if you're on campus and like you're about to get attacked or something, hopefully you can fight, I guess. Um, Cause you can't have anything really to protect yourself. And if you do have that with you, you could be in trouble. So mm-hmm. yeah. You touched on that a little bit already, but I was wondering if you could talk more about the community that's built by the students of color at UW, because it was something that I was completely unaware of when I got to the campus, but then having black students in my classes and talking to them, getting to know them, you know, I would have a student that was like a chemical engineer major, but knew all the athletes or somebody that was an athlete, but knew all the black English majors. So, and it just surprised me because there's like 40,000 students on that campus, but it seemed like Every black student, whether they were undergrad or graduate, at least at some point had come in contact with every other black student. And like y'all had each other's back. And it was just, I had spent a lot of time in Milwaukee in my 20s and 30s. And when I went to UW Milwaukee, there was a large percentage of black students there, but it, it wasn't nearly the same sense of community among students of color there like it was at UW-Madison. So could you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. So um, I feel like a big reason that the the communities of color at um, UW-Madison, but like especially like the Black students, um, was so like tight-knit, partially um, because like programs like People Program, which I came through, um, and uh, first wave and um, power power naps uh, and like some other programs I might have forgot to mention, but um, like those programs help to like bring people together. Like there's even a SOAR, um, like the orientation and all that stuff for UW Madison. Like they have basically one for like students of color. Um, yeah, literally a uh, multicultural sort. So like, uh, <laughs> yeah, so those type of things like are ways that the university in a way like um, tries to build groups to help um, with the transition into UW. But for the students, ourselves like we find and build those community certain communities outside of that ourselves like there's a black student union there's the um the black cultural center that was created um and that was 
actually a great place for us, like, because it's there and it's like an actual building that we can go to and it has resources. There's like safe space to study. There's like, that's a networking hub in itself. So, yeah. And then like the different Greek organizations and all the other stuff that that is there. All right, let's let's talk about the class that we had together a little bit. Uh, it was an art class, and it was, as far as I remember, it was pretty big, probably close to 100 students. And it was pretty racially diverse. Um, but I know as a TA, I always had to spend at least the first couple of weeks of the semester showing the Black students that I was teaching that, for lack of a better phrase, that I knew my shit, <laughs> that I was authentic, that I knew the history, I knew the struggle, I empathized, I was an ally, an accomplice. Um, and that's not something that white students ever, I don't think, even think about, that you as a black female sitting in the classroom having somebody white that looks like me teaching you about your own history or your own culture. So do you remember like maybe any initial thoughts that you might've had when you saw somebody looking like me trying to teach you about black art and black culture? Well, when I first, um, came into the class um i was like I, like i didn't i really didn't know um how to feel like at first cuz like i like to give people a chance um and stuff like that but i was just like hmm interesting i think that was like the what came into my head at the time was interesting but then like once i actually did start to um hear you talk about things and like I was like okay that's what's up like he he know what he talking about and then um and then also like then I started to think like that's really like dope that like he took took the time to actually literally educate himself and this is like what he like what his focus is on his like educational journey and things like that so like I thought it was dope after the initial, like, hmm, let's see how this goes. Right. You know. And so, yeah. like I said, that's something every semester it was brand new. And it didn't matter if I was teaching history or music or art and culture or whatever. Like, I knew going in that I wouldn't be able to BS the students of color. So I needed to be on top of my game and I knew I needed to be authentic because you can know the facts and that's all fine and good. But if you don't care about the people that you're teaching, it doesn't matter. And you would just eventually tune me out. Um, let's talk about some of the things that you started to pick up at UW and you're currently doing now. I know dance is something that's very important to you, specifically crump dancing. Mm -hmm. And I would venture to say that probably 99% of my listeners have no idea what crump dancing is. So could you at least 
Um, start off, explain what crump dancing is and how you got involved with it. So um, crump, uh, one of the like original um, definitions of crump um, is kingdom radically uplifted mighty praise. And like it, it's a dance or, uh, or uh, it is a dance form <laughs> that is originated from um, the South Central Los Angeles area in California. Um, but anyways, um, and it was started in the early 2000s by Tide Eyes and Miho. And um, there are some dancers, you can look them up. Um, and then um, some people that had a big influence on the dance um, as it was progressing and like we're in the beginning stages, um, names like um, Slayer and Little C and Miss Prissy um, and um, Daisy. Those are some names as well that you can look up and type in Crump and it's K-R-U-M-P. Um, and um, it's a, fo a form of dance that is based on emotions and the struggle that is a lived experience in the black community. Um, so we all as black people have our different journeys. We have our different paths, but at the end of the day, we're still black. We can still be racially profiled. We can still, um, if we do fall into poverty, it's harder to like come out of it being black. Um, just different things like that. Um, so like out of those struggles, Crump was formed and like um, Crump came from um, like derived from a art form called a dance called clowning with Tommy the clown. So like some people that used to be a part of Tommy's clowns, they came out of clowning because they wanted something more. So like they created Crump. So, yeah. And this is something it's it's not it's big time. It's there's a lot going on because I've noticed following you, you've traveled to different competitions all around the country. So yeah. there's definitely a big following for it. To me, part of being an educator, and I think you can speak to this as well as being a dancer and an artist. Part of it as well is trying to educate others so they get a more complete picture of you as a person so they don't just view you as a black woman with braids and somebody that is dangerous which obviously friends if you've ever seen travion or you know she is like the least threatening person ever but for strangers they're just going to have this image in their mind when they see somebody with dark skin and but if they allow themselves to really take the time to get to know and view you as a person and see your humanity and view your humanity through your art, I think that's something that is so important. That is the type of thing that can break down barriers. Mm -hmm. So you've been doing this for a few years now. Do you have goals like, are you able to become like a professional crump dancer? I know we, you know, mentioned there's different competitions, but is this, 
is this is this what you want to do for your living or is there something else that you have a great deal of passion about i'm actually going to go back to like the question you asked first about sure. uh and then i'm going to come back to this one so um, one of the original reasons why Crump was um, brought about was because they wanted to bring, um, a, give a different alternative to gang banging. Like they didn't want um, to be a part of that. So like that was like a, one of the original reasons why Crump was formed. Okay. So um, what I would like to do with Crump. Um, so yes, there is a way to be a professional Crump dancer. Um, I actually know quite a few of them. Um, like my um, mentor, or we call them big homies, but um, my uh, some of my big homies are professional crumpers. And with that, you can travel to different places and like get paid to um, teach workshops, to battle people, to... Um, to just be there sometimes to judge um, different competitions. Um, and like, there are other ways too. Um, like some people are starting to be like professors at colleges. Like there are some colleges that have crump classes. And um, so I know some crump for professors. Um, so that's like kind of cool. Um, not more than kind of cool, but that's cool. And then like, there are other people that have different passions, like film and things like that. And they incorporate crump and film together. And yeah. So there are like different, um, ways that you can be involved in crump as a professional. Um, my goal for crump is to like, for one, I want to like help the women's movement in Crump, like there's like, there's one Crump movement, like, and then like, but like in any male dominated field, there's like always a wave of women, like um, for a movement for women. So like um, currently there is a strong female presence. We're still small, but we still, we growing. And it's like, international like crump is international now so it's like it's crumpers in russia like and they good like they crazy um but yeah so anyway so like for me personally i would like to take crump to um my dance therapy field so like i'm not a dance therapist yet but in the future i will be um and i'm currently um finishing up my certificate of dance movement therapy at UW. And, um, and I'm also doing a violence prevention through movement um, curriculum, learning that so that I can have that under my belt. And I would like to use Crump with that like, and go into my community, racing, or wherever else I find myself at in the future. Um, and help the community learn different strategies of how to work through trauma and how to like become less less violent in in self. Like it's it's not necessarily a um, a way to like disarm um, my community, but it's more of a way to like help heal right. the community. 
So yeah, so that's one of my goals. All right. So what I like to do to end every interview, Travion, is give you the opportunity to plug either a website or a YouTube channel or your social media where people can go check out what you're doing and what you have going on. Okay. So um, right now I do a, um, a we- I have a web series called Women Crump Wednesday, and that's where I highlight women in Crump and their journey. So it gives you a little insight on the different women that have t- been touched by Crump. Um, and that is a, yeah, so it's a platform that I have. Um, and I have a YouTube um, and an Instagram. So the Instagram is at Women Crump Wednesday, and um, it's women with the E and not an A. And then Crump is with a K, so yes. And then um, the same for YouTube, it's also Women Crump Wednesday, and um, Facebook also. So like, follow that and learn a little bit more about Crump culture through the different women that is at it has touched, and also my collective art page on uh, Instagram is at official butterfly. Um, so official underscore butterfly. Butterfly is B-U-C-K-E-R-F-L-Y. So yes, my name is Butterfly. That's a name I created. Um, it, it was like a, co- a combination of being buck, which is a term that we use in Crump, which is like a way of saying being authentic, um, being like resilient. Um, it's also like a level and crump. Yeah, it's, it's a lot going on with that word, but, um, just know that it has some representation of crump and then a butterfly, because like, I always felt like I'm always transitioning to be something different. I, I'm always going through metamorphosis and I never plan on staying the same. So that's where the buck butterfly came together. So I just combined it. So yeah, that's um, all for now. Yeah. (laughs) That's beautiful. I love it. And it's very empowering. All right, Travis, I want to thank you so much for joining me on this episode of James Baldwin's America. Um, And we will talk again soon. And I wish you all the best in the future. Thank you very much for, for coming on. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Goodbye. My thanks again to Travians for joining me. Once again, you can find her on YouTube or Instagram at Women Crump Wednesday, or her personal page is official underscore Buckerfly. Now, before getting into the songs of the week, I want to talk about the quote of the week because it leads into the songs I want to talk about. And this week's quote of the week comes from an essay Baldwin published. It first appeared in Esquire magazine in April 1960. It was later collected in Nobody Knows My Name, and it's from the essay The Northern Protestant. And it is this. All art is a kind of confession more or less oblique. All artists, if they are to survive, are forced at last to tell the whole story, 
to vomit the anguish up. And that leads to the artists I want to highlight for the songs of the week. And I am just doing one artist for both songs because he was an extremely influential artist. And at the time of recording this on Sunday, September 13th, it's the 24th anniversary of his death. And of course, I'm talking about Tupac Shakur. And the two songs I want to highlight first is the song Dear Mama, which he released in February 95 off the album Me Against the World. And the second song is Brenda's Got a Baby. And that was released off the album Tupacalypse Now from November of 1991. And the reason I want to highlight Tupac and these two songs in particular is because so often hip-hop and rap has been met with such disdain for misogynizing women, for belittling women, for a boost in not only male ego, but the male patriarchal system of our society. And while Tupac was absolutely a part of that, and I'm not going to try and sit here and tell you he wasn't because he was very much a part of that, what separates him from most hip-hop and rap artists was he tried to have another side to balance that mask that he was wearing with songs like Dear Mama and Brenda's Got a Baby to highlight not only women in his life, but the struggles of women, particularly women of color in America. And that reconciliation he was trying to do, as I said, was something that very few hip-hop and rap artists have ever tried to even attempt. And you have to remember a lot of Pac's more violent, more aggressive-sounding music and lyrics took place when he was signed to Death Row Records under Suge Knight. And he signed with Death Row because Suge Knight promised to post bail for him to get him out of prison. So he, not to mix words, but he basically became enslaved to Suge Knight and Death Row. And he was trying to find a way to get out from his contract and off the label at the time of his murder. So I just, if you listen to those two songs, just listen to the passion, the empathy, the heartache, the sorrow he was trying to express to tell the story of the struggle of black women in this country. Lastly, I want to remind you, you can follow and give the show a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash James Baldwin's America or on Twitter at James underscore Baldwin's. You can email the show with thoughts or questions at baldwins.america at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. Please leave a five-star rating. I hope you all have a good week. I will talk to you next week. Be good to yourself and one another. Peace.